The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. I invite you now to take your Bible and open with me. We are going to Matthew's Gospel and Matthew chapter 21. It's on page 826 of your pew Bibles. And uh, the large print Bible is 981. Students in your Bible, 1276. And in the children's Bible, 1184. Whatever Bible you have, let's open it together. And we are looking together on this Palm Sunday at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Now, the most important life ever lived was that of Jesus Christ. And the most important life that he lived was brought to end at the momentous week, those last eight days, which we refer to as those eight days as the week of Christ's passion, the passion of Jesus Christ. And if you're already in Matthew 21, that's wonderful. If not, please do turn there. And the passion of Jesus Christ, the last week of his life, is so important that the four gospel accounts give a disproportionate amount of attention to that week in relationship to the other 33 years of Jesus' life. Uh, the rest of the Gospels focuses on Jesus' public ministry, but all four Gospel accounts give special attention to this week of Christ's passion, so much so that it takes up one quarter of Matthew, one third of Mark, one fifth of Luke, and half of John's Gospel is just about one week, this week of Christ's passion. And that is because in that one week, is the climactic event, not just of Jesus' life, but the climactic event of all human history and all the created cosmos and all history through all time focuses on the culminating events of the week of Christ's passion. And we have entered that week together. And so we want to know more of it. So if you've got your Bible open, let's pray. And we will hear God's word together in Matthew chapter 21. Father, as we bow before you and open your word together, we confess with our lips Jesus Christ as King. And yet, Lord, how often in our hearts we have crowned ourselves. And so, Lord, we want to see Jesus high and lifted up here in your word. Reveal your Son to us that we may both with our lips and with our hearts confess Jesus Christ as King. And so, Lord, may your Spirit fall upon our minds today to illuminate our understanding of your Word that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly receive all that you have for us in your Scriptures today. And so, Lord, come and teach us. Come and speak, for your servants are ready to hear. We pray in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear God's word from Matthew 21 in the first 11 verses. This is the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, 
say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowds said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of God abides forever. And so may he write its eternal truth upon our hearts today as we look to the triumphal entry in Matthew 21. And I have to tell you this, I just was uh, uh, texting a friend uh, this morning and he laughed and he told me quickly that when he thinks about the triumphal entry, uh, he says, uh, every, every Sunday morning when uh, we tear into the parking lot on two wheels of our minivan and I barely get my kids into the door and into the pews and sit down without killing someone on the way, that is our weekly triumphal entry <laughs> into church. Uh, and so if, if, if he's listening to this sermon later on, he'll hear that and laugh, I'm sure. Uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, uh, not us into church, though it sometimes look hectic, perhaps. The week of Jesus' passion kicks off here in Matthew 21 and, of course, other chapters in other gospel accounts. But it begins with this event on a Sunday that we, of course, call Palm Sunday. But the week of Christ's passion involves many important events, including the cleansing of the temple, Jesus' final words to his disciples in the upper room where he celebrates the Jewish Passover and then explains to them that this Passover meal is from here on going to be called the Lord's Supper, which we remembered in our catechism this morning. It would also involve Jesus's arrest, his false trial, his unjust execution, burial, and glorious resurrection, all in the space of eight days, eight days to change the course of all human history and the history of all the created order, a plan unfolding that was stretching back as far as eternity and reaching as far into eternity future, the purposes of all salvation history culminating in the one week of Christ's passion, which is why the gospel writers spend such detail here in these events, because this is ground zero of salvation history. And there is a lot happening, even just here in this first event of the week of his passion, the triumphal entry, what we call Palm Sunday. There's, there's so many details in and around the narrative and so many people and so many questions to ask about what did the people understand and who are these crowds and where are they coming from. Uh, um, commentaries and biblical scholars spend volumes and volumes investigating and unpacking the details of this text. But for our purpose this morning, I think it's helpful for us to look at these three realities First of all, what Jesus knew about what he was doing. 
what Jesus knew about what he was doing. And then secondly, the extent of understanding that the crowds had about all of this. And that is really the point of fascination because there is such a divergence of thought on that very point. How much do the crowds of people really comprehend about what's happening in this moment? So first of all, what Jesus knows he's doing. Secondly, what the crowds understand or seem to comprehend about what's happening. And then in our time, what you and I cannot afford to miss about the reality of what Jesus knows he's doing and what the crowds seem to understand and what we must not miss about what is happening here on this familiar narrative called Palm Sunday. So let us see, first of all, what Jesus knew about what he's doing as we look to these first seven verses, what Jesus knows. Matthew is very intent to present Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew to a Jewish audience. Particularly, Matthew is intent to write to a Jewish audience. And his primary motive here is to present Jesus as the king of the Jews, but not just the king of the Jews, but rather the king of all the world. And Jesus is set with intent to make that point very clear. Now, what's interesting is that as you read the Gospels, Jesus is constantly speaking in private to his disciples, unpacking the truth of who he is, but yet when it comes to his public ministry, he seems to be hesitant to let the crowds pick up on too much of the details of who he is to such a degree that he tells people, don't say anything to anyone about what you have seen here or what you have known here. He seems to be divulging information in private, but hesitant to divulge that information in public. But at the triumphal entry, Jesus, if you like, pulls back the restraints on the public nature of the reality of who he is to say it is finally set on display for all to see here is a reality which you must know because Jesus is intentionally arranging these events to make a very bold statement. Now we know how the narrative works in terms of the disciples going to fetch the animals where Jesus just tells them all you have to say is that the Lord needs them. And to that, we can read into any number of things, perhaps, that Jesus has arranged beforehand or that Jesus just perhaps sovereignly knows in his capacity as God. But Jesus has arranged this very clear public display of uh, perhaps we would call it a PR statement about Jesus' own nature. Jesus and his disciples are coming from Bethany, which is just a few miles outside the city, up the Mount of Olives and to the east, and Jesus is entering in to Jerusalem on a Sunday. Now, he'd been in Bethany over the Sabbath, the Friday night into Saturday night, and now it's time on Sunday morning to come into Jerusalem riding on this donkey. Now, here is the fascinating thing about the scene with the donkey, and we start to wonder you know, what's, what's that all about? And people think various things, but I want us to see together that Jesus does not need to ride on a donkey. In fact, this is the only occasion in the New Testament when we have the detail of Jesus doing anything but walking. All Jesus ever does is walk. In fact, he had walked to Jerusalem from Galilee, which is some 79 miles, and he hadn't ridden any donkey. But when he comes just to the edge of the city, it is arranged perfectly to mount up on this donkey for this very particular occasion to make a very clear statement. And that statement is found as Matthew quotes what he says, verse 4. Look at verse 4 again. This took place, the donkey and Jesus' entrance. It's all about, verse 4, 
fulfilling what was spoken by the prophet, and it's the prophet Zephaniah, the Old Testament minor prophet Zephaniah. And Matthew is interpreting for us what he sees there and remembers about this scene as he has it recalled to him by eyewitnesses that this took place to make clear what was said hundreds of years ago. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And it is from this section of Zechariah which is prophesying. The chapter 9 is all about telling Israel what will happen into the future. What will it look like when your long-awaited king finally comes to you? What will it look like when he brings his kingdom? And Matthew is connecting the dots between Old and New Testament, connecting the dots across hundreds of years of history, and saying to the readers, here is Jesus Christ riding royally into his capital city as the rightful king of Israel. And the emphasis in quoting Zechariah 9 is to emphasize verse 5, the humility of Jesus. What Jesus knows for sure about what he is doing is that he is embracing this imagery of the humble king of Israel coming to his people. Verse 5, it says, humble, the word could also be gentle or meek. Now, there is lots of confusion about this point because a donkey, oftentimes for us, doesn't necessarily correlate to a view of royalty. When we think of royalty, we think of the imageries of, you know, massive, strong horses, war horses, pulling a chariot. Uh, what the Romans would have done if they wanted to put on a display of power was bring about the praetorium of authority and pull out the war horses and show military strength and contrast that to Jesus who is by himself largely without a massive band except a few disciples coming in on a donkey. But People assume that it's not a royal statement when in fact actually it is because the donkey is actually in Jewish tradition a royal mode of transportation. In fact, if you want to look back later, 1 Kings chapter 1, when David sent his son Solomon to be anointed king, David sent Solomon to be anointed on his mule. And so a mule or a donkey carrying a king is not inconsistent with Jewish tradition whatsoever, but rather it represents peace. It represents peace. Now, one of the hallmarks of our constitutional republic, our democracy, is the peaceful transition of power, right? People say that every four or eight years, the peaceful transition of power. And here is Jesus making a statement about the peaceful transition of power from what has been established in Judaism for all these years to the coming of the true king. The donkey is a royal symbol, except it symbolizes peace of royalty rather than the war of royalty. Jesus doesn't need to ride in on a war horse because the characteristic of his kingdom in his coming is not war but rather peace. Jesus comes with meekness and with mild humility to draw forth people in kindness and gentle compassion to himself. Jesus reigns over a kingdom of peace. 
Or as we sing in the hymn, sometimes together, not with swords loud clashing nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. The kingdom of Jesus Christ is characterized by peace and mercy and grace. And Jesus is saying, here is this kingdom. Jesus knows what he is doing, but it intersects a world of misperception in Jerusalem. So Jesus knows, but what do the people understand? Look at it again in verses 8 and 9. What do the people understand about what's happening? Most of the crowd, verse 8, spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now notice how Matthew is giving you this detail as if to say there are, there are those in the crowd who are doing this, and there are others in the crowd who are doing this. There is not a unified, monolithic, singular reaction to Jesus. People are doing different things. People are reacting differently. Verse 9, And the crowds that went before him and the crowds that followed him, see Matthew is again distinguishing between groups of crowds. There are crowds that are in the city that receive him and there are crowds of people that are following Jesus as he came from Bethany. He's distinguishing crowds further and he further does that also in verse 10 when we see that there are those who are in the city who are not necessarily a part of this whole scene but nevertheless ask the question and people who had been a part of the scene answer. So there's all these different groups. That's the important thing to distinguish about the reaction of the crowds is that there is not one singular reaction to this but different people from different places doing different things with different reactions. So as Jesus descends upon the city, there's a crowd following him. There's a crowd that's already been there that's receiving him. And there is a crowd among those two crowds that is merely spectating. But the overwhelming majority of people, it seems, are receiving him. Verse 9, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are greeting him with this. But be clear about this point, that these different crowds of people have different expectations of who Jesus is and have different understandings about what he's coming to do. It ranges from spiritual understandings to political understandings and everything in between. Now, the words that they are using when they cry out, Hosanna, and Hosanna in the highest, blessed is the son of David, these are not just spontaneous random words. They're actually very particular words. They are quoting, so this passage is rich in Old Testament history. As Matthew's already pointed out, the Zechariah prophecy, what the people are actually shouting is they are quoting Psalm 118. When they cry out, Hosanna, they are crying out, Lord, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is from Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. The people who shouted those things meant something very particular. And we'll come back to that in just a second. The people who had a spiritual understanding were saying that perhaps those who had a more political understanding, maybe they joined in shouting these words, but they meant something different. Because their understanding of a Jewish Messiah... Their expectation of the king of Israel would be that the king would come for a political purpose to overthrow the Roman government. Rome occupies as a political authority the city of Jerusalem. And the Jews who had lived there and who had lived there for thousands of years were experiencing the oppressive overthrow of their spiritual authority by this Roman government that was subjecting the spiritual authority of the Jews. 
And when they think of a king coming, they're saying, finally, someone to come and overthrow the Romans. Someone is going to overturn this oppressive political authority and deliver us. They are welcoming Jesus to be their king, to reign over, be very clear, a national kingdom. A national kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom. They had in their minds the imagery of a king, not from Zechariah, but rather from Daniel. The king that those crowds of people were expecting sounded like something from Daniel, which says, Daniel 7 verse 13 says, that he who comes, comes with the clouds of heaven. It's like a son of man. He came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and kingdom. And the people who expected a king to reign over a national kingdom wanted a king to come with force and strength and power. And there's Jesus on a donkey. And so there is perhaps a mixture of expectation. And it's actually fascinating that the people who were waving palm branches might not have been those who are of the spiritual mindset, but the people who waved the palm branches were actually of the national mindset because the palm branch was a symbol of Jewish freedom that was first printed on Jewish currency coins during the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament when the Jews revolted against the Romans during the period of the Maccabees. And the palm branch actually represented national nationalism for Judaism and national freedom. And so they were saying, yes, let's get these Romans and let's overthrow things. They were expressing a political desire. But then you have the others. The ones who were quoting Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 is from a very important collection of the Psalms known as the Egyptian Hallel. Psalms 113 to Psalm 118 is a subsection of the book of Psalms that would be sung during the Passover meal. The Egyptian Hallel was sung two psalms ahead of the meal and four psalms after the Passover, and they were commemorative of Israel's experience in Egypt as they came out of slavery. And they were thinking about the memory of their deliverance from slavery and crying out, quoting Psalm 118, Lord, save us. Blessed is the son of David. We remember our oppression spiritually. We want to be delivered spiritually as well. And so there is this incredible mixture between political intention and spiritual intention and everything in between. Those who had political motivations uh, would particularly use the period of the Passover to uh, raise up rebellion against Rome. In fact, if you remember the story of Barabbas, that's who Barabbas was. He was a Jewish zealot that was in jail for trying to overthrow Rome. And they would take this opportunity of commemorating all this Jewish nationalism to overthrow Rome, and it always failed. And so the people said, finally, here's one for us. And the people who had a spiritual mentality said, we're suffering under our sins, and so finally one to deliver us, perhaps. But Jesus comes with this incredible mixture of expectation, but with very clear intention. Jesus is not coming to stir up a rebellion against Rome. Jesus is also not coming to reconstitute Judaism. He's coming to do something entirely different. He's coming to do what the people do not understand. And here is perhaps the narrative in the midst of the text that we have to see. That this is 
the beginning of the preparations for Passover, where the Jews would gather together in Jerusalem, and there would be, starting at this time, herds of lambs being brought into the city. Because people would purchase their lambs, have it slaughtered, make an offering at the temple, and then use the meat to eat at their Passover meal. Herds of lambs would be brought in. And so we could maybe even perhaps assume that as Jesus is entering the city, there were shepherds also driving in the herds of lambs. As if to ask us if we're making a connection, here is the Lamb of God. Did the crowds understand that? No. They did not understand that. But even if they didn't, they were speaking a need and a truth. And so what Jesus knows he is doing and what the crowds seem to understand, there is somewhat of a disconnect, which is why we cannot afford the disconnect. So what Jesus knows he's doing and what the crowds seem to understand, but then what we cannot miss is happening because Matthew is intent to present Jesus as God's king. And what was true at that moment is true right now, isn't it? That... Jesus Christ is rejected by many and received by only a few. And the true understanding of Jesus is limited. That was true then. It is true today. They were asking the question, verse 10, who is this? And they said, well, he's just a prophet. But he's certainly more than a prophet. So what can we not miss? Three things. You see them very clearly. We cannot afford to miss, first of all, his mission. That as Jesus enters into the city amidst the herds of other lambs, Matthew is saying, do you see? Do you see the king who is also the lamb of God? Do you remember what John the Baptist said of Jesus when Jesus approached him in the river Jordan to be baptized? John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Lamb of God, John 1, 29. And it is exactly as the angel said to Joseph 33 years prior to this, Matthew 1, 21, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is not coming to establish a national kingdom. He's not coming to reconstitute Judaism. He is coming in the name of the Lord because he is the Lord to do the Father's will and save his people from their sins. If we celebrate Palm Sunday with any other understanding and then go on into Easter without the proper understanding, then what we are doing here counts for nothing because it's not clear that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He's come to save his people. So we cannot miss his mission, but we also cannot miss his kingdom. He's not coming to overthrow Rome. He's coming to overthrow the kingdom of sin and death and hell and the grave and Satan. It was not clear to the crowds of people that this king was intending to usher his kingdom by means of suffering and death because that's not a very strong king. But that's exactly the means of overthrowing the kingdom that is most oppressive to us. Not Rome, but our sin, the grave, hell, and Satan. It is only after the resurrection that these things come into view for the people. 
And so we who live after the resurrection have no excuse to miss the significance of this. You have a king. You have a king. He is king of all the world. Revelation eleven fifteen says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's the part of that great hallelujah chorus. Jesus Christ is king. He reigns over all things. He makes that claim very clearly on Palm Sunday, but it is veiled by his humility. When he rises in glorious exaltation, it is clear that he claims preeminence over all things, as Colossians 1.18 says. Jesus Christ is preeminent over all things. And so again, what that means is that you, no matter who you are, no matter what you believe, no matter what system of faith you may claim, you have a king. His name is Jesus He reigns over all things. And the implication of that very clearly, loved ones, is that you and I are not qualified. You and I are not qualified nor sufficient to be the Lord of our own lives. You and I have track records of being terrible at it, actually. We need a greater king. And his name is Jesus. We are not Jewish, but this is the king of the Jews who is also the king of all the world. It's 2,000 years later, but we should say the same thing. Hosanna to the son of David, the king of kings. We cannot miss his mission. We cannot miss his kingdom. And also, very importantly, thirdly, we cannot miss his return. Now, the reason why there's so much confusion in the Jews on this point is because there are many different Old Testament texts that talk about the return of Christ and the coming of the king. Texts like Zechariah 9 characterize humility. Texts like Daniel 7 characterize strength. And when the rabbis read this in the Old Testament, they said, well, it can't be both, so it must be either or. And there were some rabbinic schools that said, The king is meek, and there were other rabbinic schools that said the king is mighty. But they didn't hold it together. They said it's either or and one or the other. They said he's either humble or he's conquering, but it can't be both. And the reason why they didn't understand that, that the king could come both in humility and in strength, is because they didn't understand what is revealed in the New Testament, that the king actually comes not once, but twice. That the first time he comes in the characteristics of Zechariah 9 with meekness and gentleness and humility and kindness and patience. But we ought not to mistake his, as it's often said, his meekness for weakness. His humility for his infinite patience. Because Jesus Christ will come again in the imagery of Daniel as the picture that we have of Jesus also in the book of Revelation coming as Revelation 19 says, then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. There you have the symbol of strength. Not this time a donkey of peace, but a horse of war. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. 
He has a name written that no one knows but himself, and he is clothed in a robe dripped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. This king is the same king from Matthew 21. But he comes at first in meekness and humility and kindness and patience to spread open his arms and say to all people, receive your king. He comes in the name of passion and love for sinners that we might not suffer under the burden of our sins, but receive this king as he is in truth But do not mistake him and do not put off making your clear decision about the answer from verse 10. Who is this? This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. This is the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't another and we must reconcile our lives with him. This king comes at first in peace but then secondly comes to make war. To judge and make war and deliver his people. Now, dear friends, that is not a word for you as a Christian believer to have it strike fear into your heart. That's not what it's supposed to do. If you do not place your hope in Jesus Christ, it is intended to call from you a radical decision to realize that you are not Lord of your own life. And you need a Savior and his name is Jesus. And he extends himself to you warmly. And for all who believe in Jesus Christ, that imagery of his first coming and then of his second coming is to give to us the ultimate consolation that Jesus is coming to make all things new and set all things right. And it calls on us to confess him here on earth so that we might be counted among those who confess him in heaven, as Revelation chapter 7 says, before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying with loud voices, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. That should be the response to a Palm Sunday. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits upon his throne. The exaltation of the King of Kings as the people threw off their cloaks and laid them on the ground. It is the perfect imagery of what Jesus Christ calls from every single one of us here today. To lay down all things at his feet and confess him for who he really is. The King of kings and the Lord of lords who comes in peace to set all things right that we might be ushered into his eternal kingdom one day. People of God, do you believe this? This is all our hope. Jesus Christ mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey, coming in peace to make all things new. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that in the Bible you show to us yourself in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his first coming to bring victory over sin and death. And, O Lord God, we pray that by your Spirit you would move in our hearts to crown Christ as King and not ourselves.
that we might have a share in that heavenly inheritance of his eternal kingdom. So, Lord, may we be counted among all those who say salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. We bless you and praise you in your triune name, Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.